enjoyed hearing the ground floor view of McMinn County, what it was like to grow up there during the Depression. But there's another story to be told. That's of a politician who operated during that same era. That politician's name is Paul Cantrell, and I'm about to set him up as a foil to our friend Bill White. This is a political story more than anything else, full of uh, crunchy political science. The juxtaposition with Bill White's story entertains me, and I hope it entertains you too. So let's get started. The genteel southern man is a sort of American archetype. You know the one I'm talking about. Talking with a slow cadence, but loquacious, probably stylish, definitely with a cutting wit. Think gone of the wind. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Now add in another dimension, namely politics. The southern politician is next level. I want to introduce you to Paul Cantrell, born in 1895, who is one such politician. When many of the people who tell the story of the Battle of Athens look at Paul Cantrell, they see cunning. Machiavellian doesn't begin to describe the things said about him. In this chapter, I want to build up Paul Cantrell in your mind. But I don't want to create a one-dimensional picture, because this story is more complicated than the forces of good against the forces of evil. Just because Paul Cantrell looks like the unforgivingly corrupt, genteel southern politician doesn't mean that he is, but everyone says he did look like one. The sources always describe his rimless glasses and keen eyes. He had a round face that tended to be pudgy. Cantrell almost always was pictured with a Stetson hat. Stetson hat is a kind of cowboy hat, for those who don't know, by saying that I'll probably be criticized by hat experts, but let's stick with it. Cantrell wore a Stetson hat black at first, early in his career, later white with a black band around it. Allegedly, he started to lose his hair as he got older, but you'd never have known it, He spoke with a suave drawl and always dressed at the height of fashion. White suits seemed to be his calling card. Allegedly, he and his wife were notorious for walking into events to some admiration from a crowd. All Paul Cantrell needed was a cane to complete the image, right? Well, I'm happy to report that Paul Cantrell did indeed walk with a cane. Yeah, you can't make this up. Paul Cantrell's foray into politics came from a deep desire to rise in McMinn County. He started in his own backyard. Cantrell was from Etowah, a town further up in the hills from Athens, but also the second most populous town in the county. These days, it's about a 20-minute drive. Let me interject into my own podcast with this special note. Pronunciation. I'm a Yankee. I always have been, probably always will be. And as a result, I tend to knock off the ends of words because that's just how we do things up here. Because of that, I think it's it's worth noting that I may be pronouncing things about Tennessee incorrectly. One of those things could be even the town of Etowah, or how I've been saying it, Etowah. It could be Etowah, and I've seen it pronounced that way, but given my tendencies to be lazy, I'm going to keep going on, on Etowah. The other one is Cantrell. I've known multiple people who had the last name Cantrell, and where I am in southeastern Pennsylvania, that's how we say it. Um, It can also be Cantrell, and that's pretty interesting pronunciation, but 
we're going to continue with what I'm good at, which is talking like I'm from Pennsylvania. And back to the show. Etowah revolved around a railroad company that stretched the Tennessee Valley, bringing goods north to south between the mountains and stopping in town on the way. Cantrell, you could say, had a head start in life. I've read over and over again that Cantrell came from money. His family had settled in the area and farmed a fortune. But I would say that he didn't slack off either. He spent some time working on Etowah's railroad system. I believe I found an old draft card on Ancestry.com from 1917, World War I, where he apparently operated the brakes for the railroad. That doesn't sound like a uh, low-stress job to me. Later, Cantrell carved out a nice life as a general manager of the local power company and then worked as one of the board of directors of the First National Bank of Etowah. I'd call him busy and respectable. He was a young man rising within his community. All of that changed in 1929. That's when the Great Depression hit, as you heard in the last podcast. Here's a clip to set the mood for you, where you get to hear about the crowds outside the New York Stock Exchange in a moral panic. The tremendous crowds which you see gathered outside the Stock Exchange are due to the greatest crash in the history of the New York Stock Exchange in market prices. As you just heard, the entire American continent reeled at the onset of the Great Depression. Nationally, Americans became furious at the Hoover administration for its so-called anemic response to the Depression. Republicans were no longer the party of Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt. Instead, they were the subject of widespread ire. And in Etowah, the railroad boomtown, commerce started to slow. Like so many other places, the bottom went out. Businesses shuttered. That included the First National Bank, and Cantrell was right in the middle of it, a member of the board and trying to keep it afloat. Despite his best efforts, the bank closed in 1932. But Cantrell showed himself to be an intelligent and resourceful guy. He must have known that a crisis can create opportunity. Using his charisma and cash base, he opened his own bank in 1932, the Cantrell Banking Company. This probably took every red cent he had to pull off. In fact, I found an old census record saying that in 1930, he lived with his new young wife and baby girl in his mother-in-law's home, along with at least four others. That doesn't really sound like marital bliss to me. My guess is that he plowed most of his money back into the new venture, the Cantrell Banking Company. Opening a bank in the midst of the Great Depression takes some guts, and it worked. Somehow, his bank struggled through. Cantrell became one of the only people in Etowah that could actually say they were making some money. Now, bankers don't exactly have a reputation for being benevolent, but you can imagine that this move, his move to try to open a bank, was probably seen as courageous by the town. Think of benevolent banker Jimmy Stewart as played in It's a Wonderful Life, the Christmas movie. In It's a Wonderful Life, Jimmy Stewart provides loans to the community to help them build houses. Remember that? Remember when he stops a bank run and ends up with $2? Cantrell probably saw himself the same way. A book called The Battle of Athens by Dr. Stephen Byram confirms that this was really a ballsy move in an uncertain time. You'll hear me cite this book often, mostly because it's the only real back-to-back history that we have at the moment. And it's got a lot of interesting analysis. But for clarity and time, and because it has a bright red cover, I'm going to call it the Red Book, which is not to be confused with Mao Zedong's Little Red Book. Anyway, 
I digress. So here's Cantrell with his little band company amidst an American carnage. Think closed storefronts, abandoned houses, and general decay. The countryside didn't fare any better. People all over eastern Tennessee floundered. Bad agricultural practices had exhausted the soil. Malaria was rampant, and the economy shuddered. A new wave of government programs began in 1933 that changed the game, though. Cantrell started to use federal bank holidays and federal government programs to try to save his own bank from the fate that so many others faced during the Depression. These programs, these bank holidays, were created by the administration of that minor president nobody's ever heard of named Franklin Delano Roosevelt, or FDR. I'm joking, of course, because FDR, as many know, radically expanded the federal government's reach into American life. Many people in Tennessee welcomed it, Republican and Democrat, in the face of an economic horror story. How did this work in Cantrell's favor? How do these programs work in the first place? Well, let me cite one of these programs. In 1933, there was a Homeowners Loan Corporation Act, which established a federally government-sponsored corporation, independent of the government, sort of independent, that would buy loans from banks in order to keep people in their homes. This Homeowners Loan Corporation was extremely attractive to banks like Cantrell's because they got a cash payment of not only the principal of the loan, but also an interest and a tax calculation. Cantrell leveraged his status as one of the last banks standing, as well as those federal programs, to buy up distressed real estate and failing businesses in town. Wealth started to attach to Cantrell. He took advantage of these programs because by doing so, he was also becoming part of a rising tide. This tide was blue. FDR was becoming beloved enough to the point that people invited him in for fireside chats. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. My friends, I want to talk for a few minutes with the people of the United States about banking. FDR's rise in his social programs reached far into Tennessee. The most famous of them was the Tennessee Valley Authority, which I believe I mentioned in the last podcast. This was a federally chartered corporation, again semi-independent, that invested millions in eastern Tennessee alone. That malaria problem I mentioned a few minutes ago? The TVA dredged standing water and dropped tons of insecticides. Malaria rates dropped. Distressed soils got huge fertilizer treatments. So for many living in eastern Tennessee, these changes must have seemed like a godsend. Cantrell took advantage of everything he could and profited. Other government programs moved in as well. The Public Works Administration built a sewer system in Etowah. Notably, also, the Civilian Conservation Corps set up encampments in McMinn County itself. Here's a clip from FDR's visit to a similar CCC encampment in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. Virginia, inspiring his forest army by a personal visit, President Roosevelt makes his first tour of the Civilian Conservation Corps camps in the Shenandoah Valley. So what did Republicans in McMinn County do in reaction to all of the success of Democrat programs? Well... They panicked. One event that really galvanized a new kind of Democrat popularity in McMinn County involved those federally funded CCC encampments. Fearing government overreach, the Republican Sheriff's Office of McMinn County attempted to get the encampment shut down, citing government overreach. It may well have been, on paper, a federal government overreach, but the public outcry came immediately. 
Bill White's own father was a lifelong Republican who had supported FDR, and he was joined by many who wanted something to be done to help eastern Tennessee. People were hurting. To shut down these encampments was a lousy political move. From what I can find, the Republican Sheriff's Office had to backtrack and let CCC encampments go forward, but political damage was already done. The mass suffering of the Great Depression and that desire for intervention pushed forward a wave of support for Democrats. That wave would crash in eastern Tennessee and in McMinn County. Our friend Paul Cantrell was about to be part of something new and exciting. For a moment, I want you to think back to that three-part map you had of Tennessee. I want you to put a series of large gears right across that map. I want you to color them blue in your mind. Each of those gears represents one part of a political machine, and that political machine was colored blue. It was Democrat. What's a political machine? Well, it means elected officials, bureaucrats, business owners, and so on, all working together in order to create a more perfect party. Political machines were a phenomenon of early 20th century politics. In New York, people called theirs Tammany Hall. The Democrat political machine of Tennessee is less famous, but just as powerful. This was a machine that helped drive FDRs to his landslide victories in 1932, in 1936, and so on. FDR, in turn, helped Tennessee gain more ground by funneling money into the state and in the forms of things like the Tennessee Valley Authority, malaria control, agricultural fertilizer, or Cantrell's bank loans. Those big blue gears you were thinking about were cranked by a Memphis mayor by the name of E.H. Crump, the boss of the Democrat machine. It isn't hard to find information about E.H. Crump because he was the boss of the Democrat Party in Tennessee for decades. His reign over Tennessee was corrupt, really corrupt, actually, but it's also very fascinating. To demonstrate the kind of power that E.H. Crump had, I've made the theme song of this podcast, the famous Mr. Crump Don't Like It from 1927. So you're talking about a decade prior to Paul Cantrell rising to power in his own town. Let me ask you this. How often do you hear about politicians having songs written about them? Not too often. I miss the crumb, don't like it, ain't gonna have it, yeah. I miss the crumb, don't like it, ain't gonna have it, yeah. I miss the crumb, don't like it, ain't gonna have it, yeah. No bound house women, garden drinking, no beer. I miss the crumb, don't like it, ain't gonna have it, yeah. Mr. Crump don't like it, it's not happening here. If they were singing about the power of E.H. Crump in 1927, imagine how powerful he'd become when a Democrat president came in and started pouring millions into the state. Crump carried Tennessee for Roosevelt, and he was paid back in political favors. Suffice to say, Paul Cantrell sensed a political opportunity. The old guard Republicans had showed their ineptitude by shutting down work camps and acting stupid and corrupt. Democrats were ascendant. The Red Book that I mentioned before says of this situation, quote, Paul Cantrell just happened to be the right person in the right place at the right time, end quote. Cantrell threw his name in the hat for the office of the sheriff of McMinn County for the 1936 elections. This ambitious, cane-wielding, slow-talking, genteel Tennessean man with significant economic power in the second largest town of McMinn County 
now ran for the county's chief law enforcement position as a Democrat in the 1930s. This is someone ready to blast off in their political career. Except it wasn't going to be that easy. The same way that starting a bank during the Depression was a ballsy move, running for sheriff as a Democrat in McMinn County was a statement as well. Mr. E.H. Crump might have run Memphis and had Nashville under his thumb like the Rolling Stones song, but eastern Tennessee, including McMinn County, had leaned Republican for a century. Don't forget that Athens and McMinn County sided with the Union and Republican Abe Lincoln during the Civil War. But Paul Cantrell was paying attention as he ran for sheriff in 1936. At the national level, FDR was shredding his opponent, Alf Landon. Here's a clip that shows you that politics has always been dirty. In this clip, Alf Landon portrays the Democrat Party mascot. But look who's here, riding the donkey, with a lot of little busybodies following after. They don't know where they're going, but they're on their way. Yes, that's right, a jackass tied to the government intervention platform. The problem was that nobody bought Landon. FDR was preparing to end this man's whole career. On Cantrell's side, he still had to campaign hard. You don't flip a county from red to blue easily, not then, not now. Fortunately for him, Cantrell had a knack for campaigning. Cantrell came across as a consummate politician, able to talk to farmers in the rural areas, as well as business owners in Athens. Cantrell had a down-to-earth way about him that people found convincing and compelling. Maybe it was the hat, or the cane. He left his business in Ottawa behind, crisscrossing the county to try and build support for his run for sheriff. One of the main artifacts we have of the 1936 campaign is an ad. Cantrell paid for a spot in the Daily Post-Athenian, the local paper from McMinn County that you'll hear a lot about in this podcast. In that ad, Cantrell promises no fee-grabbing deputies. Again, I repeat, no fee-grabbing deputies. I shot the sheriff, but he didn't shoot no deputy. What did he mean by fee-grabbing, and why was Cantrell running for the sheriff office, of all things? Let's take a moment to talk about the sheriff position as a vocation. When I started research on this story, whenever I read the word sheriff, I thought of Buford T. Justice from Smokey and the Bandit, you know, the corrupt, loudmouthed jerk of a sheriff. The sheriff position is a thousand years old, coming out of English common law. If there's a county in the United States, chances are that the law has been laid out and the chief law enforcement officer of that county is the sheriff. McMinn County was no different, and unlike, say, your local police department staff, sheriff position is elected. Why? Well, the idea seems to be that the sheriff would have to answer to voters. If they were garbage and they're terrible at their job, they were out of a job. Sheriffs are often linked to populism in the frontier in America. The idea of a sheriff on a horse visiting homesteads and shooting outlaws is kind of baked into the position. In these days of urbanization and strong municipal and city police forces, sheriffs often focus more on civil duties like evictions and serving warrants or legal papers. But McMinn County was, and still is, largely rural. In the 30s and 40s, the sheriff position in McMinn County had broad enforcement power. They also had a lot of responsibility for overseeing their own vote. Yes, the vote for their own office. Keep that in mind. You'll learn all about what that looked like practically in this podcast. But one person can't do all the law enforcement. A sheriff has authority to outsource arrest powers to deputies. 
There's actually a legal term for the freedom of a sheriff to transfer their power invested in them by voters to someone else. It's called posse comitatus. That's been discussed in my era, 2019 America, about the federal government's ability to operate an army within the United States. Well, the concept's much older than that, and it actually means the sheriff's posse, referencing his ability to make a lawman out of somebody in the community. Deputization involved a cash payment from the sheriff to the deputy, but it didn't work on a salary basis. No, deputies got a cut of the action. What you have to understand about Cantrell's fee-grabbing deputies is that there was, in 1936, an epidemic of Republican fee-grabbing deputies. Fee-grabbing was the preferred pastime of sheriffs and their deputies. It amounted to arresting people for usually public drunkenness or another minor offense, whether they were drunk or not, or whether they had offended at all, and then offering to let them free for a fee. If they didn't pay a fee, they got to spend the night in jail. Instead of a steady salary, there's no limit to the fees that a deputy or the sheriff could bring in. Can you see the problems that that might cause? Instantly, all the incentives are in the wrong direction. It's really a fast track to a corrupt law enforcement establishment, if you ask me. That cash incentive? Well, it turned deputies into thugs that crawled the countryside. The sheriff got their own cut off of that, or he could even go out and do some fee grabbing himself. Sheriffs could get some real wealth out of this. Everyone was aware of the problem, hence Cantrell's no-fee-grabbing deputies claim. One brief note on drinking in public. You have to remember that the constitutional amendment striking down the infamous prohibition on alcohol only happened in 1933, partially under pressure of the Great Depression. States and counties still often had harsh laws against alcohol in the 30s, and deputies certainly used that to grab some fees out of people. Imagine getting stopped on the sidewalk by a deputy. The deputy says, hey, you're drunk. Now you have to pay this fee or you go to jail. Now everybody's watching you and you have to say, I'm not drunk. I'm not drunk. I'm not. Yeah, nobody believes you and now you're paying a fee just so you don't have to go to jail. Cantrell was making a good move here. As the Great Depression blasted family pocketbooks, he not only pointed out the corruption but in a way painted the fee-grabbing as being antiquated out of touch with the end of Prohibition itself. But Cantrell, running on his Freedom From Fees platform, came right into conflict with the Republican incumbency in McMinn County. Think about it. If you say you aren't going to hire deputies to shake people down, you're saying that your opponent does shake people down. You've called them out. Outside of his anti-corruption platform, though, Cantrell also ran on his business acumen. He promised a strict law enforcement and business-like administration. As the manager of the Cantrell Banking Company, he did have something to say about business experience. I also found mention that Paul Cantrell could claim association with the Masons, the Shriners, and the Kiwanis. That's like the trifecta of secret societies. He was also in the Order of the Railway Conductors, which showed off his working-class experience. And he was also quite active in his Methodist church. I wonder when he had time to sleep. Election Day 1936 arrived, but if you thought fee-grabbing deputies were the biggest problem in McMinn County, I'd like to introduce you to the radical corruption present in this county's election process. The 1936 election became known for ballot box stuffing. Multiple sources claim that Republicans were throwing in extra ballots during the sheriff election, but it seems from the sources I read that Cantrell took it to the next level. 
I know I just did an aside about the sheriff's office, but lend me your ear for a minute. Let me talk about ballot box stuffing. Today, when voting, we usually use some kind of electronic counting. You might fill out a paper ballot, but you put it into an electronic counter. Supposedly, it keeps everyone honest. Back in the 1930s, a ballot box was a locked container with a slot that allowed you to drop in a paper ballot. Stuffing a ballot box meant putting in fake ballots or messing with the count. Allegedly, one of the tricks in Cantrell's arsenal of vote stuffing was something out of the Three Stooges. It's a tank. It's a sub. It's a plane. Let's put it in orbit. I'll drive it. Uh, What are you, some kind of nuts? Yeah, astronauts. Maybe the Three Stooges was actually inspired by corrupt elections. Picture this. A ballot box with no bottom is placed on a table with a tablecloth. In the center of the table, under the box, is a hole. The voter would drop their ballot into the ballot box container to be counted later, but they actually dropped their ballot to a man hiding underneath the table. That man would look at the ballot and decide. Must have been dark under there. Anyway, he would look at the ballot, and if it didn't support the Cantrell machine, he would tear it up. We have a lot of different stories of Cantrell's election hijinks. This was just one of the methods. You might laugh, but this is actually serious business. It means the transfer of power is corrupted, and if you're a fan of reading history, you know that the moment when we transfer power from one group to another is easily the most dangerous time for any society. Spoiler alert, this won't be the last election we cover with ballot box stuffing. Let's say for a moment that Cantrell did stuff ballot boxes in 36, which isn't hard to assume since some people later admitted to doing it for him. And let's say that the Republicans had been doing similar nonsense for years, using the sheriff's election oversight capacity to cheat. Did two wrongs make a right? What if you add in that the new guy promises to end corruption? I guess you have to believe in the new guy, right? Well, whatever you think of politicians' promises, and I don't think much of them either, Paul Cantrell ended Republican control in 1936. This acted like a political earthquake in eastern Tennessee. You can imagine Cantrell celebrating with his wife and two daughters. He probably phoned the various gears in the political machine, like colleagues in other districts of eastern Tennessee, Birch Briggs in neighboring Polk County, and maybe even E.H. Crump at the center of the political machine in Memphis. It must have seemed like a new day for Cantrell and the culmination of years of hard work during the Depression. Cantrell's was the classic story of an incumbent party screwing up a long-time incumbency through idiotic levels of corruption. Meanwhile, Democrats swept the nation in the 36th election. Here's FDR's 1937 inaugural address when he brought in a New Deal coalition that cemented his control over American politics. To do this, we know that we must find practical control over blind economic forces and blindly selfish men. Closer to our story, Tennessee had just gained a new gear in its machine. That meant Paul Cantrell's ascent to the sheriff's office marked the start of what must have been an exhilarating and exhausting decade. He had promised reform. It was time to work. Newspaper records show that the job must have challenged Cantrell from the get-go. In November of 36, not long after his August election, a young woman was beaten to death at a local roadhouse in Athens. She was just 17 years old. Cantrell issued a statement and booked an employee of the roadhouse as a suspect. In December of 1936, just a month later, a man apparently committed suicide by slashing his own throat. Cantrell wasn't sitting in boardrooms anymore. Now he had to look at dead bodies and book criminals. 
One more story shows how Cantrell might have been in over his head. Compared to murder and suicide, this is really low stakes, even amusing. But above all, I think it was embarrassing. Here's how it went. Cantrell was set to remove pinball machines from local stores in Athens. The local parent teacher association and the temperance union had complained. I guess back in the day, kids played pinball when they should have been doing homework. A fight over private property rights erupted. A court ordered Cantrell's office to leave the game machines in the stores, stopping him and his deputies cold. Cantrell defended himself to the press, saying he was just following up on a complaint. Evidently, the court didn't feel the same way. And the whole affair must have driven him nuts. Anyway, that's three stories that made to the papers within a few months of his election. Pinball machines, murder, suicide. Hopefully this drives home the fact that if Cantrell thought the sheriff position would be an easy way to step into politics, he got over that assumption pretty quickly. More importantly, the reform idea of no-fee-grabbing deputies slid quietly to the side. Fee-grabbing went on. Cantrell failed to live up to his promise. What a surprise, right? Fee-grabbing, Cantrell found, was just one of the many lucrative pursuits of deputies within the county. Turned out the sheriff position sat at the center of a nexus of bribes. For instance, Backwoods bootleggers, a remnant of prohibition, still operated around McMinn County. Deputies extorted bribes from ones who would cooperate and busted the ones that didn't. Business shakedowns, likely over permitting, were common. Deputies raided entire Greyhound buses for fees and blackjacked people who didn't comply. So you have to ask yourself, did Cantrell promise an end to fee grabbing in order to win votes? He certainly wouldn't be the first politician to make and break promises. Or did Cantrell believe he could bring about something new to the office? Maybe he thought breaking Republican control, joining McMinn County into the Tennessee Democrat political machine, well, that maybe that would all streamline some changes. I'd love to ask Cantrell why he couldn't do what he said he was going to do. Cantrell had a response to this, though. He claimed any change to the deputy pay structure, so getting deputies out of the fee business and onto a salary, would require an act of the Tennessee General Assembly in the county court. I don't know about you, but appealing to the legislature doesn't really convince me. If he thought it was all too corrupt, he could have, for instance, pledged to put all that extra money he earned back into charity or something. But part of me still wants to know what went through his head. If you'll indulge me for a minute... I want to apply some organizational theory to Cantrell's actions or lack of action. One of my favorite theories is voiced by a science fiction writer named Jerry Pornell who wrote an excellent first contact novel called A Moat in God's Eye. He calls this organizational theory the iron law of bureaucracy. Sounds frightening, and you should be frightened. Under the iron law of bureaucracy, organizations have two kinds of people. The first group believes in the mission of the organization. Think of a school, maybe. The mission is to teach kids. Teachers teach the kids and are proud to do it. They're in the first group who believes in the mission. But in the iron law, there's a second kind of person in an organization. That's a person who seeks to further the organization, not the mission. That's the administrator who hides the bad activities of a teacher for fear of bad press. That corrupt administrator doesn't really care about the mission as much as they might care about preserving the organization. The most important implication of this iron law is that the second group gains and keeps control over the organization every time. Every time. The ones who care about the mission lose power, and the ones who care about continuing the organization, mission or not, stay in power. 
you can apply the iron law of bureaucracy to any number of things. You might have a job, you might work in a workplace, you can apply it to yours, but try not to overthink it because it's pretty cynical. But apply it to the Cantrell situation. Here you had a guy who started out trying to make the sheriff's office do what it was supposed to do, or that's what he said he was going to do. But when he gets in, everything was already a mess. All the pressure was to continue to do things the same way. Plus, he got involved with the Democrat machine, people like Crump, who were gleeful over the idea of a toehold in eastern Tennessee. Cantrell started to slip away from the actual function of the job. He slipped to the other side, to the side preserving the organization he had become the head of. The iron law of bureaucracy. Pretty interesting, right? Or maybe it wasn't the iron law. Some sources just say that Cantrell was a corrupt dirtbag. You decide. Shifting back to the story now. Instead of cleaning up corruption, Cantrell started to focus efforts outward. He spent more and more time in Nashville, interacting with the Tennessee political machine. I think Cantrell was meant for the state capital of Nashville. He had a sort of public nervousness that set him apart from the truly great orators, but he still struck an impressive figure. His two daughters were said to resemble society girls. You might imagine two young women out of the Great Gatsby or something. I found some photos of them from back in the day in their college yearbooks. Both daughters seem to have taken after their father. It's said that Cantrell maintained the image of a Philadelphia lawyer in dress, which I gather is a compliment. I know a few Philadelphia lawyers and none of them dress well. Cantrell would always drive a fancy car, in quotes, like a Chrysler, though I drove a few Chryslers in the 2000s and they weren't that impressive. Anyway, I digress. Back in rural McMinn County, as he carried out his sheriff duties, like getting slam dunked by the courts over pinball machines, Cantrell didn't really look like a sheriff. He didn't wear a bucket hat and spurs. He didn't wear jack boots and a bronze badge. No, Cantrell didn't even carry a gun. He dressed in his white suits and his Stetson hats for one of the dirtiest, most demanding jobs in the county. The business of law enforcement didn't seem interesting to him, I don't think. Not the way high life over in other parts of Tennessee might. The Red Book says about Paul Cantrell, quote, If Cantrell had a major flaw, it was his capacity to become insulated from day-to-day activities, end quote. If the Red Book is right and Cantrell was disinterested in details, like a little fee-grabbing, you start to see his weaknesses as a sheriff. He didn't want to carry a gun and bust heads. He wanted to get into politics, and the sheriff's office was a means to an end. He secured his incumbency as sheriff in 1938, and then in 1940. This was around the time that Bill White was working as a steel rigger for Alcoa, to put things in perspective. If you thought the 36 elections were shady, with the accusations of ballot box stuffing, check this out. An article that ran a few days after the 38 elections describes how Cantrell, newly re-elected sheriff, had to arrest several men, one shot through the lung, after a ballot box was grabbed by a gang in his hometown of Etowah. A shootout went down, the men scattered. Other electioneering practices occurred too. One popular one involved supplying potential voters with whiskey or chewing tobacco in order to get them to go to the polls. Who doesn't want to get drunk at the polls, right? Cantrell was accused of this kind of bribery, but also of more in the 1940 election. So on August 1st, 1940, Cantrell arrested the son of the man running against him, claiming that the Republican planned violence. Well, politics is always ugly, right? Cantrell wanted to hold on to that sheriff position, and he wanted to hold it because he had his eye on a greater prize. 
he held a hope in his heart that the sheriff position in McMinn would catapult him to state politics. Cantrell had his eyes on the governor's mansion. That sheriff office would allow him to climb, ignoring on-the-ground realities with the corrupt establishment he'd become a part of. He wanted to become state senator. That state senator seat would mean he would be in Nashville, among other legislators, writing the laws of Tennessee. He actually wasn't a far shot to a state senate seat from the sheriff's office. In fact, he was almost there. Six years of sheriff meant a real base of power. He'd made a lot of connections. Tennessee Valley Authority money was coming into the county and his banking business was doing nicely. He'd built support with maybe a little intimidation, but it was still support. The 1942 elections approached. A 1942 win of a state senator seat would put him into direct conversation with the rest of the Democratic state machine. He'd meet officials from across the state, attend dinners and events, go out to drinks in Nashville with other elected officials, and strike deals. He'd get to know Crump on a first-name basis. Plus, who wanted to stick around the country arguing about pinball machines? How far do you think Cantrell imagined himself getting? Just governor? United States Congress? Further? Nationwide, Democrats enjoyed FDR's continued successes. In 1940, FDR had run for president for a third time. That's right, FDR ran against president set by George Washington himself. Some people, Republicans mostly, argued. They did not succeed. At home, the economy was getting better, moving in fits and starts, but moving. Overseas, the darkness of fascism spread across Europe. FDR promised no foreign interventions in his 1940 campaign, but did continue to preach the ambitious social programs that had driven him that far. The country re-elected him heartily in the 1940 election, meaning the Democrats still had a hold on the country. As Cantrell prepared for his run for state senator in 1942, setting all the pieces into place, the Japanese attacked the United States at Pearl Harbor, December 7, 1941. You know I have to play this audio of FDR talking about Pearl Harbor. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate and of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked. McMinn County volunteered up thousands of its men to join the war effort, men who saw it as their duty and men who also were sick of their rural life, like Bill White. I saw an estimate of 2,500 men from McMinn County alone. Pearl Harbor acted like a magnet for recruiters, attracting every young man from across town. This sudden outflow of men changed a lot about the nature of crime and justice in McMahon County. The sheriff might have even lost some deputies. But petty crime caused by young men between 18 and 25 must have slackened. Or maybe I should say the 17 to 25 age group because of our friend Bill. Cantrell, though, wasn't serving in any foreign wars. He could continue in politics. Cantrell wouldn't have been subject to the draft for two reasons. The first is that the Selective Service of the United States had a special provision falling under Code 4B. This is a deferment to the draft for reasons of being a public official. Because what could be more disruptive than putting your elected sheriff into the war in the Pacific or the war in Europe? 
Cantrell had other things to do than pick up a rifle. Besides, he was too old. 1942, Cantrell was 47, and soldiers over the age of 45 were pretty rare. Cantrell was staying home. And as the USA tooled up for wars overseas on multiple fronts, Cantrell took another step up the political ladder. McMinn County elected him state senator in 1942. Rumor had it that the FBI had examined the results of this election due to reports of malfeasance with the ballots. Apparently, armed deputies stalked the polls. They might not force you to vote a certain way, but they nudged you the right way, so to say. Some insiders told Cantrell that intimidation strategies would backfire, that he couldn't intimidate people forever, but nobody really stepped in. The FBI never intervened, and it never forwarded charges to the Attorney General either. Then again, this was Hoover's FBI, and a Democrat administration was in the White House. And the Tennessee political machine wasn't going to step in either. They were happy to hear about his win. It's kind of hard to actually find the accusations of thuggery and cheating. I instead ran into them in retrospect. People would later say that they were always against these armed men at the polls. But I think many were distracted because their sons and brothers and fathers went off to war. Who can really get into local politics when the national and international politics might result in everyone speaking Japanese or German? So, Paul Cantrell, state senator, started showing up in Nashville for the Tennessee General Assembly. Since Cantrell had stepped out of the position of sheriff, there was a new sheriff in town. Pat Mansfield will come up often in this story. Pat Mansfield was tall and broad of shoulder with a big flat nose, and he had the reputation of being quick to anger, but always at church on Sunday. Mansfield, I think, saw the virtue of attaching himself to Paul Cantrell. His successful sheriff campaign centered around his personal solving of a crime using fingerprints, the first time that had ever happened in the county. How wild is that? When Pat Mansfield took over as sheriff in 1942, he worked on Cantrell's orders. Cantrell now had infrastructure. By 1942, he had built his own political machine in McMinn County. County positions were his for the taking or were already inhabited by his people. Call them acolytes or trainees or apprentices or cronies. In his native Etowa, Cantrell's brother, Frank Cantrell, became mayor. Pat Mansfield, the new sheriff, picked deputies from among the undrafted population. Remember that the people he would have picked as deputies would have been probably of prime draft age, but hadn't been drafted for one reason or another. By hook or by crook, they had stayed home, and remember that because it will be a real source of tension later. Even better, probably because of the rural nature of the county, Paul Cantrell also became county judge in 1942. I scratched my head when I first read this, but it wasn't a conflict of interest per se. The county judge was a county-level position, while the state senator's seat came from Nashville. Remember when I asked you to picture Tennessee as a series of interlocked gears back in Chapter 1? Cantrell had created his own gear, and its teeth were his friends and allies. Cantrell further locked McMinn County, traditionally Republican, into the state Democrat power structure. The Democratic Party must have appreciated this. They elected Cantrell as party chair in 1944 as the war overseas heated to a boil. Cantrell probably saw an advantage he had over circumstance. Power requires a lot of support structures, and Cantrell had them well-engineered. Like the Republican establishment before him, he made sure his people back in McMinn County were re-elected. 
events conspired to help. In 1944, nobody really paid attention to the campaign because the Nazis and the Japanese reeled from Allied assault on multiple fronts. I don't think it's right to just say that Cantrell grabbed power and ran with it, even though all that electioneering nonsense had gone on. Cantrell did do good things for the war effort. That's why he's an interesting character, who wants a simple villain. As a state senator, Cantrell organized rationing and scrapping. He did it all for the boys overseas. American industry needed material for producing guns and tanks, and the military wanted every spare bite of food to be saved and counted. As sheriff of McMinn County, Pat Mansfield, Cantrell's understudy, continued the fee-grabbing traditions of the sheriffs before him. But he squeezed McMinn too tight. Remember, wartime America was already squeezed. Rationing, war drafts, shortages in basic goods, and the ongoing torture of the Depression affected the daily life of people in the county. Despite people's troubles, Mansfield comes across in the sources as being savage on the populace. As a farmer I know says, church on Sunday, steal your shirt on Monday. Fee grabbing continued. Random acts of thuggish violence went on. Cantrell, working Nashville, was either oblivious or he didn't care, or maybe some of both. I imagine that in his mind, Cantrell thought he was getting closer by the day to a potential run for governor. The Democrats consolidated their power in McMinn County with Cantrell at the head of it. I don't have Cantrell's diary. Maybe I can get access to his family record someday. But remember that we have two critical insights into Cantrell's character from the sources. On the one hand, a desire for the governor's office and to rise high, and on the other, a disinterest in details. Now add in the complexity of the sheriff position and the complexity of the political machine he created, well, you could say he was deeply entrenched with a lot of ambition. I think it takes a special kind of person to want, want to run for governor, right? You have to remember that you deserve the position every time you go out and campaign. If you don't believe you deserve it, you definitely won't win. I think Cantrell believed he could do the job, and I don't really think he found sheriff work interesting. That's why he gave that position to a protege, Pat Mansfield, and moved on to enhance his own political career. But in pursuing his career, he'd sacrifice anything. That included the freedom of his constituents. It would cost him, he just didn't know it yet. Let's grab a freeze frame of a moment in time for Paul Cantrell. The year is 1944. He's just won a second term as state senator. Picture him in his white suit and Stetson hat. His cane is leaning on the wall next to the door of his office because he's sitting in his leather chair during the blazing summer months of eastern Tennessee. He's thankful. He's thankful he doesn't have to clean out his desk. There's a haze of tobacco smoke in the air because Cantrell is surrounded by the political operatives of his machine. Someone in the room might have a drink, even if it's a little early in the day, but they're celebrating. That political gear, the blue one, it spins around Paul Cantrell. In 1944, FDR is into his third term, the Nazis and the Japanese are on the ropes, and McMinn County is firmly in the grasp of his mind and imagination. On the radio, Bing Crosby sings about swinging on a star. Would you like to swing on a star? Carry moonbeams home in a jar And be better off than you are or would you rather be a mule? Do you think Paul Cantrell is thinking back over his time in politics? If he is, he's thinking about how he came a long way from Etowah. 
He came to his first elected office in the midst of an economic devastation. Power accreted to him ever since. Sure, a few of the elections he presided over as chief law enforcement officer didn't go off honestly. Then there was that whole fee-grabbing thing. But Cantrell doesn't get into the details. He's on the right path. He believes in himself. The voters had brought him back into office as a state senator again. Paul Cantrell looks out over his domain in 1944 and has to be pleased. He feels empowered. That empowerment, which you might call hubris, will become a problem for him. In this podcast, I've charted the ascent of a political figure. There are portrayals of Cantrell from across the spectrum, and few of them are flattering. That especially happens in retrospect. A prominent journalist who later worked on the Camelot legacy of JFK named Theodore H. White said about Paul Cantrell, quote, Cantrell loved two things, money and power, end quote. That's the deepest White ever goes into Cantrell's character. Now, I'm no Theodore H. White, but I don't think that's a fair assessment of anybody. Cantrell would try and defend himself, if you asked him. From his perspective, Cantrell probably thought he made mistakes, but he'd be sympathetic to my idea of a man captured by institutional inertia, if I was to judge. He'd certainly cite the crimes of the Republicans who came before him. All of that, I think, makes the picture a little murkier. You've now heard two stories of two men, Paul Cantrell and Bill White, and while they're both from the same place, they couldn't be more different. In the next chapter, we're going to mash together their two stories. What you're about to witness is one of the more interesting local races I've ever heard of. Along the way, you're going to meet a few other characters, some with heart, some with hate, and a lot of them armed. You'll be there as the campaign gets more and more heated, and then you'll be there when the system falls apart and the battle begins. Thanks a lot for listening. Join me in our next podcast, Chapter 3, The Campaign. Thank you.